Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Well, we now have a railroad that is running from Canada all the way to Mexico, or Mexico to Canada, as you want to look at it. Uh, It is owned by a Canadian company, And it is a merger with the Kansas City Southern Railway. I think it's going to be called the CPKC, eh? Mike Steenhawk joins me, who is the executive director of the uh, Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, I was trying to be a little humorous there with the A, but uh, apparently I didn't even get it. So uh, how are you today? I am doing fine, doing fine. Were you shocked, uh, or was this such a long-term process you thought it was going to go through one way or the other with a Canadian railway buying the Kansas City Southern and completing this NAFTA passageway? Yeah, yeah, I guess I had I was somewhat surprised because I, I, I think the overall sentiment within the, the administration, and I know that the agency that approves these mergers and acquisitions is called the U.S. Surface Transportation Board, and it, and you know, it has, you know, some independence from kind of the, the political wins, but it, you know, these are still political appointees. Uh, three of them are Democrat appointed by the, 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 the president and two of them are Republicans. And it always depends on the majority is always depending on who happens to occupy the white house, which party occupies the white house. And, and so it certainly is influenced by, you know, the political trends and, you know, my kind of read on the current, political environment is not exactly enthusiastic about mergers and acquisitions and companies getting bigger. I, I wasn't putting money on on the uh, approval either way on the deliberations, but um, that is something I think is, is indeed real in this country. And so I guess it was a bit of surprise when we saw the, the Surface Transportation Board on March 15th uh, approve the the acquisition. So you know, again, it'll result in you know a a railroad that offers single line service from Canada through the United States into Mexico, which is which is quite unique. Obviously, there's a lot of implications of this for the broader economy and and agriculture specifically. Well, it seems like the uh, reality of mergers has been that uh, if you weren't big enough to compete then you were going to be the high-cost provider. You were going to lose business to others, and you were going to make it to where that you had a very hard time staying in business. So you either had to merge or you had to die, if that's not too drastic. And interestingly, you know, it's happened in the grain industry when farmland industries tried to get big, and they couldn't get big enough, and then they finally went bankrupt. So it does happen. But I wonder in this case, did the railroads in question have a lot of overlap with other railroads? And really, were they big enough to matter put together compared to the other railroads we have in the U.S. and Canada? And, you know, that was one of the things that did resonate with the Surface Transportation Board is that, you know, this this argument that 
what what will exert more competitive pressure against the other five what are called class one railroads? So that's BNSF Railway, Union Pacific, Norfolk Southern, uh, CSX, and and Canadian National. So what's going to exert more pressure against those other railroads? Will it be two smaller railroads that have a very distinct and more regional kind of network? Or will it be, a com- if you combine those two railroads, Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern, which will all of a sudden be more comparable in reach and in scale and in scope to the other railroads, um, what, will, what will create a more competitive environment? And obviously there are diverse, differing opinions on that, but it, that clearly did resonate within the Surface Transportation Board that the thought that this will actually result in more competitive pressure against the other railroads. And, you know, not, not all mergers and acquisitions are the same. You know, sometimes, you know, a, a merger, uh, especially when you see considerable overlap of operations of company A and company B, well, what that usually pretends is that there will be some kind of liquidation of service or of network or of assets of one of the two companies because it's clear that there is some degree of redundancy. And so if you're a customer in that scenario, you, you the red flags go off and say, oh boy, I'm going to, all of a sudden, I'm going to have a decrease in service. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, this is different uh, where you look at the networks of the two railroads, Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern, they're very distinct from one another. Uh, Canadian Pacific very much has a Western soybean and corn belt to the Pacific Northwest kind of network and footprint. And then Kansas City Southern is really Kansas City on south through the south central United States into Mexico. And really the only place where they have a juncture is in is in Kansas City. That was another reason why the the Service Transportation Board approved the, the acquisition is because there wasn't this overlap. And so there wouldn't be which would be result in a less diminished likelihood, at least of any kind of liquidation or, or disband, disbanding of assets or service or parts of the network that, that does provide some degree of hope uh, for agricultural shippers that uh, it, it might actually result in increased marketing opportunities versus diminished ones. But I, again, I think, I think it's important to keep, keep coming back to that uh, having a a kind of a wait and see approach, having a, a a little bit of cautious optimism, I I think is, is merited. Um, Hopeful that the, this does end up providing some benefits to agricultural shippers, but, you know, definitely having a wait and see approach, I think is wise. Mike, I know that during the uh, course of the Time that we've been looking at the potential for the Kansas City Southern to uh, sell. The Canadian National Railway, which is about twice as big, it appears, as the Canadian Pacific Railway, looked like they were going to be the buyer. And you were pretty negative toward that. Did your association, did your coalition uh, lobby in any way to try to make it to where the two smallest railroads merge? rather than a big one come in and buy a middle-sized one? Yeah, we, we didn't you know, really make a, an aggressive push uh, either way, whether you know, for or against the Canadian National or for or against the Canadian Pacific efforts to acquire the Kansas City Southern. But what I did do is 
I, you know, I did relay the fact that there were more red flags being ra- that were raised when the Canadian National made an effort to acquire the Kansas City Southern, because number one, it would it would just simply make the Canadian National Network bigger, and it would really marginalize the can the Canadian Pacific um, and really kind of almost reduce them to you know just a regional railroad. And the fact that with the Canadian Pacific acquisition of Kansas City Southern, that will result in a network that is not identical to the Canadian existing Canadian National Network, but it is similar because you you'll now have two networks that that really have this kind of strong trunk shape that runs north and south through the middle of the United States. Then it ends up forming kind of a Y or a T where it branches off to the west coast of Canada and then another line to the east coast of Canada. So both of those two networks will be quite similar. And then when you when you kind of look at that, you think, well, that that will probably result in more competitive pressure against one another. And so that that was kind of the the reason why you know I would hear more concerns being expressed among agricultural shippers about the Canadian National approach. And I, I think there's some some merit to it. You know, throughout all this whole process, you know, our kind of perspective has been, hey, let's just kind of we'll we'll make our make our thoughts known, but we're not gonna really ag- aggressively lobby either way for either of the 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 transactions. Well, I was looking at the data that you put out that uh, really sourced how big railroads are. It is kind of phenomenal on the size of these railroads and the small number of them. If you look at uh, the way they stack up on uh, operating revenue, the Burlington Northern Santa Fe is at almost $26 billion. And you then drop to number seven, which is the Kansas City Southern, at $3.5 billion. And if you look at miles on their graphic showing how many miles of track that they have, you go from 32,500, basically for the top two, which is the Union Pacific and BNSF, down to 7,100 for Kansas City Southern. And if you add number six and seven, which is the merger together, they are still not even close to as big as these big ones. So my question really here is, have we gone far enough here on these mergers? Because if it looks like you jump one more level, uh, you're going to have four railways that will be the entirety of the countries, U.S., Canada, and a chunk of Mexico. Yeah, and th- and that's one of the things that I, I think it's it's appropriate to have some concern about with this this you know the merger and acquisition trend and you know the you know, one of the things that we witness in a variety of industries is that a merger or acquisition in one occasion will motivate and inspire further merger and acquisition you know elsewhere within that industry and i don't know of any agricultural shippers who welcome that prospect and and so that's that's something i think is 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 reasonable to be concerned about kind of a rule of thumb when these kind of things occur is that more red flags are raised when the combined entities constitute a higher percentage of the of the market and so that it does provide more at least fewer concerns 
the fact that you've got the sixth and the seventh largest railroads combining, which will still result in the, in the smallest of the, the now six class one railroads. But it, again, it's still something that is, we, we need to, you know, remain, you know, actively engaged in, um, you know, every once in a while, there is this kind of rattling about having some kind of merger between, you know, one of the the Eastern railroads, uh, whether it's Norfolk Southern and CSX and one of the Western railroads, which is BNSF and, and, uh, and Union Pacific. There hasn't really been any kind of energy behind that because I think we're a long ways from it, but that's something that does continue to, to raise its head on occasion. I think it's, 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 proper to have a have a concern about these kind of things and a, a healthy degree of skepticism about these kind of mergers and acquisitions because you know the, the the fact of the matter is it has resulted in a diminishment of service from a numerous agricultural shippers and an increase in in rates among numerous agricultural shippers you know you go to any county any rural elevator um, throughout the the Midwest, and you see railroad tracks that feed into it that are more than likely uh, they've been abandoned years ago. So that it is a, a reality. But then we, all, I also need to you know keep in mind that really with any capital intensive industry, there is a strong tendency to have mergers and acquisitions and and combinations. Agriculture is one of the classic examples of that in really every aspect of whether it's the seed, the providers of the seed, whether it's the actual handlers of what farmers produce, whether it's the manufacturers of the equipment, you know, there is a strong tendency of that within agriculture. And of course, you're going to, it shouldn't be a surprise to see that within the rail industry as well. I don't want to wallow in the past, but I recall in my AgriTalk days of the nineties of which, by the way, I'm pulling shows and, actually airing them again, and some of them are frightfully uh, up-to-date or just the same situation, just a different complexion on the battle, that they were trying to take some railroads that were closed and switch them over to trails. Remember, rails to trails? We have quite a few of them across Iowa, the Midwest. And it was showing in the 90s that the railroads had said, if you don't let us be uh, less regulated, we're going to go out of business. So they made it to where that all those rural tracks were obsolete and they were not going to handle them anymore, which actually worked in their favor. And it caused a lot of consolidation in agriculture, as I see it, because you had to move to where the railroad was. So your grain elevator, of which, you know, you were right, there's tracks leading into every one of them, but they're abandoned. So the 90s made a huge difference in the way that those railroads ran their businesses. I guess my question in all of this, is it that the railroads are now moneymakers and are not going to themselves run into costs that overwhelm their amount of revenue? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, you know, that having that perspective is very important. So that the Staggers Act of 1980, it, it provided latitude for the railroads to be able to manage their networks in a way that would be profitable for them and sustainable for them. Because, you know, the the freight rail industry prior to that was simply choking on itself. It was not on a sustainable path. And so the, the, 
kind of the, the the challenges that arose from the Staggers Act is you did that railroads were allowed to do things with their network that uh, whether it was sell, lease, abandon altogether parts of their network that were not profitable. I, I think that's clearly beneficial to them, you know, for, for, for numerous rural communities, that was not a welcome, you know, development, but the fact that it allowed railroads to do that, it allowed railroads to have more flexibility in, in setting pricing of their service. It clearly put railroads on a more sustainable path. It clearly is a complicated, complex issue, but I think, you know, the, the net result of that is we have a freight rail system with all of its inadequacies and all of its imperfections that, that really is the envy of the world. I don't know of other countries that have a better freight rail system than the United States. A lot of countries have a better passenger rail system, of course, but as far as a freight rail system. And if you were to ask me the question, if you have an announced capital intensive project within the inland waterway system, like a lock and dam, whether a major road and bridge project or a major rail project, which which of those three projects will be completed most quickly and most within time and on budget? I would say the rail versus, you know, because the government starts to get involved in roads and bridges and locks and dams. If you ask me the question, if there is a natural disaster like a flooding event that um, damages, whether it's a lock and dam, a bridge, or a, a part of the rail network, which of those three will be back up and running in the quickest amount of time? I would say rail. Um, and so they do a lot of things well, actually. Um, again, there's always kind of this tension between agriculture and the rail industry, that is a tale as, t- as old as time, and it's going to continue into the future. But they do do a lot of things right. And so I, I think, you know, it's very valuable and, and, and beneficial to, you know, make sure that they're providing the service that agriculture needs, but then also being willing to acknowledge the fact that they do do a lot of things right. Let's pause for a minute to talk with Taylor Parker, who is the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, is there a link between those people who have a type of diabetes and a potential for hearing loss? The answer is yes. If you are a type 1 or a type 2 diabetic, you're twice as likely to have a hearing loss. If you're a pre-diabetic, you're 30% higher than those with you know normal levels of glucose think about, you know, our body being all connected, you know, everything interacts, everything works together and proper blood flow is, is required. And and it helps keep a cochlea. The cochlea is a tiny little snail looking, um, apparatus that is part of the hearing process inside of the cochlea. There's 15,000 tiny little hairs that need to be in good condition to get a proper signal to the brain from the ears for hearing loss. When you have high glucose levels, we lose the elasticity for our vessels and proper blood flow, they shrink and, and we can't get that good proper uh, blood flow up to the cochlea as, as well as, you know, all the other extremities in our body when, you know, when we're feet, things like that. And hearing loss is the second leading health epidemic in the United States, only behind heart disease. Everyone talks about all these other conditions Heart disease is very similar in, in the standpoint of proper blood flow, all those things. So diabetes 
has that huge piece, whether you're type one, type two, or even pre-diabetic, has a huge role in good hearing or having a you know potential untreated hearing loss. Thank you, Taylor. You can schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. Call them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Mike Steenhawk is my guest. He's the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. He's based in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, working at the Iowa Soybean Association, and then uh, outward from there. How many years have you been doing this, Mike? The organization was established in 2007, so we just hit our 16th anniversary. And I've been the staff member since the organization was created. So I, I was approached by these groups of soybean farmer organizations about the prospect of starting this new organization that focuses on transportation issues that are of consequence to farmers. And um, I obviously embraced the opportunity and we've been doing it for 16 years now. Mike, let's jump south here a little bit. Are there any Mexican railroads that are cost competitive big enough that they might actually move north into the U.S. or even Canada? Yeah, I I haven't seen any movement in that regard or even a suggestion of that. Um I guess anything is is possible, but you know the the two Canadian line networks, the Canadian Pacific and and Canadian National, they, there's been more of this history of a that they're, you know, pretty considerable railroads themselves. But over time, over years, they they acquired significant trackage in the United States with Canadian Pacific acquiring what was called the Sioux line and the Canadian national acquiring what was called the grand trunk line. And so there, so that really kind of positioned those two railroads to, to have significant operations in the United States. So they're more in a position to have this kind of expansion. Whereas the, the Mexican lines, I don't see that as, as much, you know, I guess anything, anything can happen, but I'm, I haven't really seen any kind of, suggestion that that would be on the on the horizon i want to jump further south and see if you know anything which is about brazil because in all the years i've been going to brazil i went there in 83 i went up there about three times in the early 90s and i was there in 2013 the last time and they said yes Mato grosso will soon have a railroad does Mato grosso the huge soybean producing area have a railroad yet They've made some investments in rail. They have a connecting that that area of the country. They still have a long ways to go, um, but you know they are making improvements. They've you know with within you know developing rail infrastructure, uh, but then also ports in the northern part of the country, which really enhances their competitive um, standing uh, in the international marketplace. So you know this whole this whole kind of notion where you know, the U.S. has always enjoyed uh, our competitive advantages mostly resided in our ability to transport things more economically. You know, that's not as pronounced as what it used to be. And, you know, that, you know, my my perspective on all this has been, look, there's not a whole lot we can do about what happens in Brazil. If, you know, if if they invest in their infrastructure, you know, that obviously, so be it. That's clearly their prerogative to do so. And it's, this is not any kind of st- state secret that their problem historically has been their infrastructure. They recognize it. Um, 
everyone's recognized it. They're finally seeing some progress being made. Again, they have a long ways to go. But my perspective has always been, hey, there's not a whole lot we can do about what happens in Brazil, but there is something we, we can do about what happens in the United States. And if we become no longer the most economical choice on the international marketplace, I hope it's because Brazil has actually been acceptable, exceptional about investing in their infrastructure, not because we've been lackadaisical investing in our infrastructure. Well, I have watched them from a farmer perspective. And of course, you watch the transportation portion. And I respect the fact that you are dealing with how can U.S. farmers keep their costs down for transportation and have it available so that they can get their products in and get their products out. But I do find that Brazil has certainly not made the uh, the progress that China's made, for example. Brazil basically was a third world country until they built Brasilia in, I think, the early 1960s. And then in the early 1980s or late 1970s, they started growing soybeans uh, with the help of Japan. And I really thought at that point they would take off. But the infrastructure issue is so critical, just as you're saying, that if you can't get a means to haul things in and haul things out, then your production is trapped. And I think one of the reasons you asked, you tell me if this is what you think, that they grow a lot more soybeans than other crops is because soybeans are higher in value and smaller in volume than those other crops that they have to haul out with a straight truck. Well, absolutely. You know, they, they, you know, I've seen corn production in Brazil and they are very well equipped to produce significant volumes. But then when you see their congestion on their roads, uh, their primitive ports, and you think if that's happening with a 50 bushel per acre crop, imagine what it would be with 150 to 200 bushel uh, per acre crop. And so, yeah, that, that clearly is acting as a, as a governor on any kind of further corn production within the country. Right. Let's come back to the U.S. One last thing. Dream a little bit for me here. What could be coming in multimodal transportation or in uh, putting truck interstates down the middle of the current interstates with automated trucks? Any of those things on your mind? Yeah, I, I think, you know, further automation within the, within the trucking industry, um, you know, clearly is something that we're going to continue to see in it. It, it, you know, the, the, the first application is not going to be a driverless, you know, semi, but it'll maybe be more hands-off. You might have more what's called platooning, where you're seeing, you know, trucks able to move more as a kind of multiple trucks being able to move more as a unit, kind of like a, you see in a, a, a Tour de France kind of bike race where they're able to draft uh, against one another and, and be able to achieve a lot more efficiency. I, there clearly is some, some opportunities with that within the, the trucking industry. And, you know, the truck driver availability is not something that's going to be, you know, the solution is not just over the horizon on that. That's going to continue to beguile us in the future. I, I'm, I'm really, you know, interested in, you know, the prospect of, you know, with, with the kind of the, the black eye, our, our, our river got last year with low water conditions, being able to utilize that more 
thoroughly than we than we are with you know containerized shipping on the inland waterway system. Um, that's something that's really interesting to me as well. And in this whole kind of big issue within the soybean industry, and we're we're still really trying to wrap our arms and our minds around with all of this additional soybean processing in this country, there will clearly be a need for exporting more soybean meal. And to what extent does our infrastructure, is our current infrastructure compatible with that? And to what extent does there need to be additional investment in that? And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, ambition to um, invest a lot of money in more processing and, you know, maybe not all of that will eventually come to fruition, but a lot of it will. And again, that's going to pre- present, you know, some real challenges, but some, but we, we also consider a very exciting opportunity. Well, Mike, it's always interesting to listen to the depth to which you can go in all of these areas and how closely you follow transportation uh, on behalf of farmers. And the Canadian Pacific Railroad and the Kansas City Southern are now one and will begin operating as such. And we'll follow what happens in that regard. And I thank you very much for talking to me today. Hey, it's always good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Mike Steenhawk, who is the Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, based in Ankeny, Iowa. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.